Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time. So, you know, we have had number of conversations that talk about what makes a good leader and what why people and why leaders are so important to organizations. Now, I have a tremendous amount of experience with small business and small organizations, and I know you got your start as a leader at a very young age in a small business. Tell me about that. So I had a really interesting upbringing because my father started his own business from nothing, and he loved writing software, but also saw a market out there for building custom computers and things. Of course, this is during a time when you couldn't just go down to the store and easily pick up a computer. Computers were thousands of dollars, and they weren't really accessible or expected to have five or six of them in your home. You had five or six TVs. You had one computer, maybe. Maybe you had no computer at all during this time period. But my father was building this business from scratch with a business partner. And as a young kid, I was exposed to his techniques of leadership, managing, starting a company from a very early age. I was so impacted by it, in fact, that one of the things I would do for fun was to sit in a closet while my mom was doing dishes or whatnot and make fake documents because I wasn't even old enough to write anything that was legible and then have my mom sign them like I was sitting there, some big business executive myself. And so it just was one of those things that as a kid, you mimic your parents and want to be like them. And I wanted to be like my dad. And I saw him walking around with a briefcase and having people sign contracts and do that kind of stuff. So I was able to kind of watch uh, and grow from the perspective of somebody building this from nothing. And I also got to watch my mom supporting him because it would have been so much easier for him to just go off and work for another company. But he wanted to build this empire himself. He wanted to build this business himself. My mom supported him this entire time. And there were a lot of difficult times through that. Looking back as a kid, I didn't realize how difficult they were. But there were a lot of difficult times, a lot of sacrifices the family had to make to get that business started. So as I started going to school and realizing that I'm sitting in these classes, I was in specifically in a math class, this happened, and uh, the teacher wanted to go out into the hallway and talk to another teacher instead of instructing the class and said, okay, everybody, uh, dump some sand on your desk and count the grains of sand. I'm not exaggerating. That's what the task was. And I realized I'm wasting my time so much here. Because my dad's running a business and I could be learning so much more if I could just go work at his shop. And so I went home and I asked my dad, I explained to him what was happening at school. And I asked him, can I just work for you? Can I learn how to build computers? Can I learn how to write software? <clears throat> and he said, absolutely. You can do all of those things, but you're going to start off washing windows. And he kind of taught me from that moment. I was young. I was uh, between 12 and 13 years old when I first started. And I would sit in there and I would clean the windows and I would clean the office. And then when I was done with that, he would take me in the back and he would teach me how to build computers and how to write software. And I got paid nothing for it. Zero. You're helping the family business. This is what you do. And your payment is this education that I'm giving you here. That's what my dad would say. As a kid, I was mad. I wanted money. My friends were making money at their jobs, you know, working at fast food or whatever. I wanted to have something that would make money. Of course, looking back on it now, I realized the education he was giving me wasn't valuable. The interesting thing that took place after this is as a 13-year-old, my dad started, there were two people working at the business, me and my dad. My dad started leaving because he wanted to write software. That was his passion. That's where all the money was coming. But now he had the storefront he had built where we were selling computers. 
There was only one person left at the time to run that, and that was a 13-year-old. And I did. And I made a lot of mistakes, and I learned a lot of great things throughout the process. Now, he was in and out day by day, so as I would make those mistakes, he would come and correct them. But the thing is, I think it was a very unique perspective for a kid to be running a store, and it became such a thing because I took it very seriously. I dressed up in a suit and tie every day to work the sales floor that people would come in just to see the 13-year-old talk about computers, which today may not be as shocking to people that a 13-year-old's talking about computers, but back then it was certainly shocking in the local community that that existed. And I just learned a ton of leadership management, especially as my dad brought in more people and the business started to grow. Now I'm in charge of those people. As a young, as a young teenager, that's very difficult. They have more experience than years than I've been alive, but I learned a lot through the process. So it sounds like this all started really with your family and family values and family support system and that strong bond that your mom and your dad had and the way that they supported one another then translated into a successful business, which they then handed down uh, those lessons to you. It sounds like your family really valued knowledge. They really valued education, but they valued knowledge and education in the sense of actually learning something and making a difference in the market, not necessarily just attending school for the purpose of attending school to get a degree. And I think this is one of the things that a lot of people struggle with in, in our day and age. The message that we have sent to our kids is you have to attend school at the cost of everything else. Go into debt, borrow money. If you have to, doesn't matter what you major in, but you have to go to school because without a college degree, you're worthless. And what I'm hearing from your story, Ryan, is that's not accurate at all. And that success really has far more to do with the commitment and the and the general level and understanding of how to treat other people and how to support other people and how to provide a solution in the marketplace than it does your academic pedigree. Absolutely. I always say in an interview, in fact, one of my interview, one of the things I always say in interviews, I am looking not at your technical skills, but I'm looking for the things that your mama and daddy were supposed to teach you mm. that, that, you know, having drive, uh, being dedicated to the work and passionate about what you're working on. I can't train that. I can't give you good work ethic. That is almost impossible to train as a leader. I can train you all the technical stuff. I can train you about networks. I can train you about telecom. I can train you about coding. I can train you to build computers. I can't train you how to be passionate and have that love for what you're working on and look at everything as I want to be. I don't care if you're washing dishes for a living. I don't care if you're building computers for a living. If you're doing it and you've accepted it, be the very best you can. Be the best dishwasher in that entire restaurant. It's going to make an impact on people around you far more than having a fancy degree. Interesting to that story, I dropped out of school at that point to work at my dad's shop. There wasn't a program like they have today where you could work half, you know, in the school and then go to go to work afterwards like they have uh, today. So my option was drop out of school, get a GED, which I did. And that interestingly became an issue later on in my career that I wanted to personally resolve where I went back and got my college degree, but that never held me back because people were more interested in the passion and enthusiasm that I had than the fancy degree. Get, talk, as you progress through this, 
you eventually reached a point where you're no longer working at your dad's business. You're going to look for uh, a job in telecommunications. How did that transition occur? So my dad decided the business took off, but competition was getting extremely fierce. And we could, you know, people were practically giving away a free computer with, if you opened a new checking account. And Circuit Cities and Best Buys and everything were popping up. And we didn't have the luxury that some of the big companies have with the gigantic investors and amount of money to cut special roadways and have stoplights to make it easier to get into your business. And we knew that, you know, this was probably something that was going to be very difficult for us to continue to maintain. So we made the decision at the height of the business to sell it. And we wanted to move and be closer to family. So we moved to a different state altogether after the business was sold. And the idea was me and my dad were going to start up a business again, but he kind of enjoyed retirement a little too much. So that meant I had to go out on my own and now find a company to work for. So I went out there and started applying and one of the telecom companies reached back and they were interested in hiring me for an order manager position as a temporary, um, as a temporary job. So as a contractor. So I accepted that job as a contractor to do entry-level work, which was to manually sit there and type in orders for networks and things like that that people were placing. But I knew quickly that I, I felt myself that this wasn't something I wanted to do full-time. I wanted to get back into the heavy, heavily technical side, and I wanted to get back into managing and leading people because to me, it was my tool. Even as a, as a young kid at this point, I'm 18, 17, 18 years old. Uh, I think I got the job at 17. I was about to turn 18. And uh, I was just, I really wanted to get back into that leadership position again. So I knew I had to do something that would make a big impact. And because my dad had given me the skills that he did, that big impact thing I did was I automated the manual entry of the order <laughs> management job so that... I could do hundreds and hundreds of orders a day instead of just 10 or 20, which we had a quota. I think it was 25 was our top person manually keying network orders. And all of a sudden, a month into the job, I remember the supervisor's face comes to my desk and goes, you keyed 130 orders. And they were all correct. What are you doing? And I thought, I'm either in trouble and I'm going to get fired at this point, or they're going to be blown away by what I did. And so I showed her, this is what I created. I created a macro, takes all of these fields that are redundant and everything and automatically copies them in and pulled me into her office. She handed me one of her awards because she couldn't get an award um, printed out fast enough. One of her personal globes that was made of glass and said, here, we've got a new project we're about to launch that's super secret and we're going to make you a part of it. Would you be interested and so that was me getting in full time to the company and also me starting to make an impact on my career. So the bigger lesson here is you applied this principle that you're that you're telling people and there's somebody out there that's listening and going, yeah, be the best dishwasher I can be. That's that's too cliche. But the truth is you applied that principle to an entry level position and it paid off big time because hey, I'm going to be the best data entry person ever, and I'm smart enough to know that there are better ways to do data entry. But it sounds like a key component of that, Ryan, was the fact that your leader at the time saw your potential, recognized that potential, and then immediately took action to capitalize on that potential before you left. Has, has that experience, has that repeated itself? 
it's repeated itself multiple times throughout my career. There have been times where things are bad, there's layoffs occurring in the company, um, but because of the work that I did, no matter what position I was put in, and I've worked in all facets of corporate America, I've done customer service, I've done collections, I've done order management, I've done deep network uh, work, I've done tower work, I've done it all. But in each situation, the same thing applies. Don't accept the standard that's set to say a good employee does X, Y, Z. Do that, do X, Y, Z, but then take it to the next level. And that's been my career. And that has helped me avoid in 20 years having a single layoff or being fired or having massive employee complaints or HR issues and all this. In fact, I will tell you that a lot of times when I hear about people being afraid of HR and dealing with their employees and all their issues, I don't have that experience. I sit there dumbfounded. I don't have HR constantly coming to me with issues with my employees. I don't have my employees constantly going out on long-term disability or short-term disability or any of those things. Actually, my biggest problem, and I joke with it, my team, with my team and my boss now, is trying to get my team to stop because I get them so deep and so driven into an overall mission that I have to tell them, stop working, please. It's the weekend. Go enjoy yourself. And that, to me, is the difference between managing people where you get X, Y, Z and leading people where you get their full potential unlocked. You've had you have been essentially groomed as a leader from a young age. And so that gives you uh, somewhat of a leg up. But if there's somebody out there that's listening to this and they're saying to themselves, I found myself in a position of leadership. I just I woke up and I got promoted or the last that I was the next best guy for the job. I don't know what to do. I'm scared of letting people down. I'm scared because I don't know what the right decision is. What do you tell that person? I like to tell people about how terrible of a leader I was. So going on that same story, when I first started, I was groomed to be a leader and I had certain values that maybe others wouldn't have inherently had in lessons and education and running a small business, which did help provide a lot of structure. But when I was 18 years old, I'm still just kind of a stupid teenager. And 18, that new position for that special project was I became a supervisor for the first time. So now I'm leading people. I'm leading people once again that have more work experience than years I've been alive. This was very, very difficult to really overcome and to gain people's respect in that. And I look back at my leadership style then and I see so many mistakes and so many errors that I made during that time period, because any new leader is going to uh, make those kinds of mistakes. I think the most important thing that I did was, number one, I was open to being molded. So when I did make mistakes and somebody pointed it out, I didn't get defensive. I didn't go, how dare you come and give me feedback? I've run my own company with my dad and blah, blah, blah. I shut up. I listened. Even if I didn't agree with it, I went home. I reflected on it. And I thought, what good lesson is there there? The second piece is I observed. This was my time period to be a sponge. I looked at the effective leaders in the company, the people I wanted to be like, but I also looked at the terrible leaders in the company and the people I didn't want to be like. And I jotted down notes and I watched and I listened how they interacted with their team. I looked how their teams interacted with them, with people at the table listening to them give a speech about what their mission's going to be. Were they rolling their eyes, playing on their phone, doing something else? 
or were they truly engaged? And you, I could tell very early on the type of leaders that I wanted to mimic, that I wanted to be, but it was a long road. It wasn't instantaneous, but I'll tell you my teams at the time, one of the things they did notice, especially when I went back to some of them 15 years later and said, oh gosh, I was such a bad supervisor. I'm so sorry. They were like, yeah, you had some rough edges, but you were constantly improving yourself throughout that time period. And that's what I would tell somebody in that case is there is no perfect formula for leadership. There is no X, Y, Z. Being a good leader means that you have to adopt yourself to adapt yourself to the environment and to each individual person. I jokingly say sometimes being a good leader means you have to be bipolar. Somebody wants some people on your team are going to want to be awarded, for instance, on stage. They're going to want the big production. That's what motivates them. Some people hate that. They don't want to be uh, awarded on stage. They don't want their name out there. They want to be privately told you're doing a great job. Every person's different. Part of being a leader is being able to adapt to those people so that you can get the best potential out of each individual person. But make no mistake, nobody's born a perfect leader. You learn it and you steal like an artist. You steal from the very best leaders that you see. You take the very best talent, talents and capabilities that they have, and then you look at the terrible leaders, and you say, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to micromanage. I'm not going to talk to my team like that. I'm not going to beat up people publicly. If I have an issue, I'm going to address it immediately. I'm going to take them into a private conference room, and I'm going to handle it there. I'm not going to take the easy roads out. What does that conversation look like with conflict with an employee? You have you know, an employee that's done something that is completely out of line, completely unacceptable, uh, and now it's your job to deal with it. You said you deal with it immediately. You don't leave any time. So we got that part. Um, so they, they come into your office, or I assume in your case, you, know, you, uh, you connect with them privately. But what does that conversation look like? To me, it's really about changing the behavior. It's not about berating. It's not about making, destroying people's you know, opinion of themselves. It's about fixing a specific behavior. But you also have to, again, adapt yourself to that individual. I have people on my team that do amazing work in one area and maybe not so great work in another area. Like I have some people who are so detail-oriented that they will spend twice as much time on a project than it may require. So I could beat them up constantly about, oh, you took too much time, you took too much time. But then instead, what I do is I take a look at it and say, well, you know, that specific project, I'm going to give you projects where I need that kind of detail, where analysis and perfection are exactly what I want. But I'm not going to let that, it's kind of like a kid when they bring home a report card and let's say they get an A in English and they get a D in math. Most parents' natural reaction is, I'm going to focus 100% on that D in math. And they forget entirely that they got an A in English. And I think the best thing to do is to, you've, you've got to focus on the fact of what's their tool. What are they good at? You still need to bring that D up. You can't ignore it. But you don't want to also ignore what they're great at. So those conversations to me are much like that. I will go in there and talk about the great things that I notice immediately as well. But when something does come up, and it needs to be addressed. It's straight. It's to the point. This is what happened. This was the result. And then it's the question of what can we do to fix it? We, as a team, together, what can we do to fix this from happening again? So now I'm engaged. I'm involved in the process of resolving this with the employee. And I'm not coming to them with the solution because maybe my solution's stupid. 
maybe, you know, if the problem is they can't get to work on time and I find out after asking the question that it's because they've got to drop kids off and all this other stuff, you know, I may not have a good solution that I pre came up with the idea of how they could get to work on time, but I let them come to me with that solution. And then we plan it together and then we document that plan and then we inspect what we expect, right? I go back a week later and say, hey, here's what happened with our plan. Eh, it didn't quite work on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, but worked on Thursday and Friday. So what happened Thursday and Friday allowed you to do it? So we're working on this as a progress. It's not a do or die. It's not a you're a terrible human being because you didn't hit this expectation. As long as they are willing to listen and take feedback. And that's the whole, again, going back to, what your mama was supposed to teach you, the type of people I personally look to hire. And so the people I bring on my team are open to that. They're open to giving that feedback. And they're also open to giving, once you build that trust with them, that feedback back to you. And I, as a leader, have to be able to shut up and listen and take that feedback and become better because everything I've learned in 20 years, I'm still learning better ways to be a leader to this day. How do you deal with gossip? It's one of the things that, at, you know, in my company, I just have a zero tolerance policy for it. I will give them one warning. You get one warning. Uh, if I, if in, in the way that we define gossip is simply having a conversation with somebody who can't affect change on the problem. And so, you know, if they're sitting over the receptionist desk saying, going, did you hear what the boss said and what the plan is going to happen? And I just don't have time for that. And what happens is it breeds so much toxicity and it and it and it works to destroy something that we have spent years trying to build up and it can be destroyed so quickly because it's so toxic and 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 it spreads so fast that I just don't have any tolerance for it. Have you dealt with gossip at all? And if so, what are some effective management strategies to curbing it? I mean, in corporate America, gossip's kind of just part of Part of the culture in a lot of ways of what people, um, you know, expect the water cooler talk, if you will, that, that goes around mm -hmm. the way that I address it is by leading by example with my teams on my team. One, one of the things I observe when I talk about bad leadership and bad management is that bad leaders and bad managers engage in that type of gossip. And they are constantly talking about if something happens wrong that maybe impacts the whole team so everybody knows about it, then they spend there talking about how stupid Susie is or how dumb uh, Bob is or whatever it is. So the leaders themselves engage in it, and then they expect a different outcome from the employees themselves. So I avoid those topics entirely. I may talk about, well, Bob's decision here impacted this. How are we going to work around it? But I do not. I had like you, I have zero tolerance for people who start getting on a call and saying, oh my gosh, this person did X, Y, Z or does this or does that. And it impacts, I don't want to hear about that unless it's a specific task. And it's my same rule, by the way, about religion and politics. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. If you want to take me out for lunch outside of work and you want to talk about that stuff, we could do it all day long. But at work, I don't want it judging or hurting anybody's perception of anybody else. Therefore, my rule is we just don't talk about it. So much like you, gossip to me is zero tolerance. If somebody does start dragging people's names through the mud or I hear about it, it's one of those address immediately, pull in, say, you don't hear me saying this. You'll never hear me saying this. That's the same expectation I have of you. You are brought in from time to time to help other leaders figure out what they're doing wrong and bring. you're brought into teams to analyze what is going wrong and how they can be more effective, what kind of things do you find that uh, some of the mistakes that people are making in leadership? Well, you know, I think every 
circumstance is a little bit different. So to kind of expand upon what you're saying, I, I've been in programs specifically rotated to underperforming teams uh, every 60 days. I did this for over a year where I was rotated to underperforming teams every 60 days to improve their performance, figure out the problems and you know put them in good shape and then move on to the next team. This is a very difficult amount of time in this short window to establish trust and to get to the core of the issues. But I would say the number one problem that exists in, in most leadership is leaders who want to lead from their desk. They want to sit in their office. They want to pull reports. They want to manage everything electronically, but they're not out there on the floor with their teams. They're not engaging in the process. They'll tell their teams, for instance, we want you to work weekends. We want you to work overnight. We want you to you know, put in all of this extra work, but they themselves sign out and go home at 530. This does not set the proper example. You're not a soldier out there on the field with your team. You're not leading from the front. You're leading from behind. And that's the biggest difference, I think, in how I saw good leaders taking on teams and encouraging them versus bad leaders. The good leaders were there in the ditches. When things got rough, they were there and was in in the mud with them. For instance, recently, we had a server migration. The migration ended up going 20 hours. Now, my team has exceeded my capabilities in networking and tools that they have. They're better than me at this stuff because they get to focus on it all day long. And I'm the leader that has to you know, do a lot of the getting things and blockades and stuff out of their way. So I don't have the same amount of time to focus on my skill. But at the same time, I sat on that bridge for the entire 20 hours of the server outage with my team. Did I have to? No. What do most leaders do? They leave. They go hang out with their family, spend the weekend with them, all of that. But if I'm asking my team to suffer, I'm going to suffer too. I'm going to get in there and do everything I can to help. And that to me is one of the things that I see most ineffective leaders doing is they will not get into the ditches. In fact, there's this terrible saying out there that uh, a leader can be moved into any position and doesn't have to know what their team does. There's truth to that because obviously through that rotational period, there were times where I didn't know what those teams specifically did. But you know what my first couple of weeks were dedicated to? learning exactly what that team does and how to do their job just like them. That means taking the calls. That means being on the phone with the customers. That means going through the systems and learning their job because how can I coach them or tell them they're wrong or that we don't need that new tool or that new process or they don't need this blockade remove if I don't understand what they do? You have to get in there with your team. And so the first thing I would tell you as a new leader, the first job you have Number one, shut up and listen. Learn the culture of what's going on in the organization with the team. Learn about the issues and make yourself accessible. Be at the coffee maker at the same time every single day so that people, as soon as they start getting brave enough, know, hey, Ryan goes to the coffee maker at 9 a.m. every day and he sits in there for 10 minutes. That's my chance that I need to tell him this thing that's going on in the organization that maybe is above other people, other managers, other supervisors that I don't feel comfortable going to them with, but I know he's there and that's my time to tell him about what's really going on. So you make yourself accessible, you have patterns that they can have, and that starts to build that trust. And then the first time somebody brings you something and you don't go, you know, giving their name out and, you know, having situations where they're retaliated against and all that, people go, oh my gosh, that Ryan guy, he's somebody you can trust. We can tell him more about what's going on in this organization that's impacting us. So those are some of my tips. But number one is get in there with your team. Be a part of it. 
What role does scheduling and planning pay for leaderships? I know I've worked in organizations and worked with organizations that um, the 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 leadership is oftentimes totally left out of the planning and or scheduling process or the opposite happens where leadership takes care of all of the planning and scheduling and then it's just left to the rest of the team to try to figure out how to actually practically implement implement those those scheduling and planning changes you know i i think that in every facet of the business you have to as a leader show that you are in control of what's happening and you, the buck stops with you at the end of the day so setting up proper scheduling and being involved in that well in corporate america we generally have all of these different what i call fiefdoms right different groups that handle different things i've got a different group that handles scheduling i got a different group that handles vacation i've got a different group that handles hr and i've got these whole organizations to support but you really don't have in a small business, but that's how corporate America works. Now, the easy thing for me as a leader to do is go, hey, ex-employee, I know you have a problem with your schedule. I don't make schedules. Go to the scheduling team. But does that really instill confidence in you that that leader has your back and is trying to help you the best they can? So my team is considered very rebellious in, in many ways. And all throughout the organizations and teams that I've led, they've all had the reputation of being very rebellious because I have a rule with my team that if we are the best at what we can do, we can break every rule. Every rule you want, we can break. For instance, I'll give you an example. I had a team that wanted to work from home. The company had no work from home policy. In fact, all of the executives were completely against the idea of working from home. Terrible idea. I told my team and one of the turnaround teams, if you give me performance that outshines every single group in this organization, and you can maintain it, I will get you work from home. Because if you're the best, you can break all the rules. And they did, and we got work from home, which eventually spread like crazy throughout the company because it was extremely successful for us. The same thing, though, taking it to a smaller scale, back to the scheduling question. My team, if there's a scheduling issue, and they involve me in it, I'm getting involved in it. And I'm going to be in there discussing it with my team members. We're going to create it together, just like we do the mission statement. I don't go off in a corner and create my mission statement. I create an idea of where I want our group to go. And then I go to the team and I explain to them, this is the battlefield. This is what we're up against. These are the challenges that we face. Here are some thoughts I had. What do you think? And now I've incorporated, because I hired the right people, people that I trust, to help guide that discussion to create a good mission statement. It goes with even something as simply scheduling. It's the same thing. It should be a group effort. Your leader should always be involved in the things that impact your team. That's what you're there for. How do you balance employee needs versus customer needs? What do you do when you have uh, you know, a mandate given to you, um, reasonable or unreasonable, I might add, but a mandate given to you and an employee uh, or a team member of yours they either screw up and they don't meet that expectation. Um, again, it, to me, it's not really relevant whether or not it's it's a legitimate request or a legitimate mandate, but the reality is that oft, we are going to not always meet customer expectations. And in that moment, as a leader, Ryan, you have a choice. You have a choice between taking the customer side, again, right or wrong, or taking the employee side, again, right or wrong. How do you navigate those waters? This is a really difficult one. At the end of the day, if you make a commitment to a customer that you were going to accomplish XYZ and that commitment wasn't met, that's a failure. Now, it's a failure in which 
you don't necessarily have to go back and say, oh, somebody's got to be, I mean, depending, of course, on the situation, but generally the failures aren't something where somebody has to go back and be fired. Um, but there are a lot of learning lessons in it. For instance, one of the things I tell my employees is that honesty is the most important thing that we can have. The speed of trust, if you ever listen, listened to or watched or read Stephen Covey's book, uh, Speed of Trust, I think it has some fascinating lessons in it about uh, working with organizations in which nobody trusted other people were going to do the work and how that slowed down the the company and the teams tremendously. So you've got to trust your teams are going to do the right thing, but mistakes do happen. Customers do get impacted. To me, I'm an employee first type of individual. And I don't just say that as a fancy slogan because every company says employee first, but I really do input my employees first. But what that also means is I set proper expectations with my customers and I like to put in as a little buffer room the whole theory of the Scotty principle from Star Trek of you basically create a bigger timeline than you're ever going to need and you deliver it faster. And But having that bigger timeline than you're ever going to need means that in case you do need it, you still met expectations. So I think part of being a leader and understanding your team's job helps you not to to avoid those situations in which you as a leader or somebody else is setting off expectations for your customer that don't get met. And all of a sudden you have a really bad situation where the customer is upset and you have an employee that didn't meet their commitments. The other thing is you, you know, there's a big difference between inspecting what you expect and micromanagement throughout a process with your teams. You should be inspecting to make sure that their timelines, their goals, their project is, is going accordingly is, is, is hitting the times that have been set up. And if it's not, then that's your job to pull them in before it becomes a fiasco to address that. So to me, it's one of those things where in the rare case that it does happen to me today, it's a learning lesson that we go back. Were we honest with each other? Did we tell each other what was going on? Did you come to me and tell me you weren't going to meet this before it became a fiasco? And if it's not, then that's a behavior that we have to adjust that we're going to sit down in that private conversation and we're going to figure out a plan for so that never happens again. I am a huge, um, and this is very difficult in corporate America, I am completely 100% against layoffs. I think it's the worst thing a company or corporation can ever do. But I am 100% on board with firing people. If somebody cannot meet the expectations on a consistent basis and they have no um, ability to continue to improve themselves, then they've got to go. But layoffs are completely different. This is where you're taking it out of control and you're just saying, well, a company missed some guidelines, uh, you missed some measurements, so you're gone even if you're good or you're not. And that's why I have never, in 20 years, in a giant company with tens of thousands of employees, we've had many layoffs, probably more than most companies, never laid off a single employee. It's never happened, not once. And the reason I can do that is because my team's reputation, we're the best at what we do. We hit our mission. We meet our goals. We don't lose. We always win. And so nobody comes to me when those situations come up because, like, we have to have Ryan and his team. We have to. Like I said at the very, you know, talking earlier, when you're the best at what you do, you can get away with a lot. Um, but there are situations, to your point, if somebody consistently was missing customer targets, we had those conversations and they, you know, just continued to, then at that point, you need to fire that employee. What does that process look like for you? You've had, so you bring somebody in your office, I'm, I'm guessing two, three times, um, and you have the same conversation. Hey, just so we're clear, um, this was not going well. At some point, do you tell them, you know, this is the last straw. If this happens again, you're going to be terminated. Um, and, and, and how have employees reacted to that? It's a long road 
to be fired on my team. And what I tell people is if you're ever surprised that you're being fired, I have done a terrible job as a leader and that's my fault. And that was, has been my goal from the very beginning at the point that you're fired a part of my team, you know, you've messed up, you know exactly what you've messed up. You've helped and worked with me to create a plan to fix those mess ups that you've had. And you've continued to show that you're not going to do that. So I don't have any stories to tell you. And unfortunately, I've had to fire um, a lot of people in my lifetime where somebody was just completely shocked or taken off guard. They knew it was coming because it was just a constant. They just didn't know necessarily it was that day, but they knew it was coming because it was a constant pattern of repeating the same behaviors. And I will do everything as a leader in my power to put people in a position to win. That's part of my job. I hired you. That was what I took on. And I'm going to do everything to create the best plan to get you out of the situation, to put you on the best uh, opportunity to win, to use your tools, the area you get an A in. But at the point where we just cannot make it work, then you got to go. And so to me, the process should not be shocking at the end. It should be a long road. It doesn't have to be super long, but it needs to be a long road of, I'm going to give you ample time to fix this pattern, this behavior. If you're not able to fix it, then we got to both agree this isn't the right fit for you. I also offer people throughout that period, maybe this job isn't for you. And because I have a vast network of people in other industries, I've noticed you're really good at X. So I have some friends that also work in that industry that need people like that. So why don't we try to work on getting you over there? So it's it's a situation where they don't view me as this horrible enemy that shocked them out of nowhere and fired them because they made a single mistake. They look at me as somebody who's trying to help them in their career. And yes, there are tears sometimes and people get upset and things, but I don't think anybody has ever told me I'm shocked. I can't believe I'm here. And that's my goal. That's awesome, Ryan. I, I, I'm, I'm blown away every time I talk to you um, at your, at the experience that you've, it, been able to amass at your age. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic. If people want more resources on good leadership and and good practices for leadership, what are some of the resources that you use to better yourself as a leader? To me, it's constantly enveloping yourself in learning and reminding yourself about leadership practices. So I know leaders, for instance, that I'll say, hey, you know what's a really good book? I'm going to give you guys a couple right here. Um, Colin Powell's Secret to Leadership, one of my favorite leadership books ever. Um, there's the the book called Nuts, which is Herb Kelleher's ability to turn around Southwest Airlines and make a profit in the airline industry even after 9-11, the only airline to do it. Um, there are you know Stephen Covey's Speed of Trust. There's all these fantastic books out there. And when you tell leaders, hey, go out there and read some of these books or put them on an audio you know, for uh, audio listening to books if you have to on your commutes or whatever, they roll their eyes like, I know that stuff. I've been doing this for 20 years. But the thing is, every time I listen to those books, yes, a lot of those lessons I knew, I've heard before, but they're not fresh in me anymore. And so to me, it's about constantly, like anything else, learning and enveloping yourself in that world of leadership. I've got 20 years of experience now leading, plus years of experience when you include my dad's business. And every single day, I learn a new tactic that works with a very specific person that may not work anywhere else. And I get those tactics by watching, observing good and bad leaders, and reading and 
doing everything I can to educate myself and remind myself of the lessons that maybe I knew five years ago and were utilizing that skill set constantly and actively, but have since kind of gotten rusty because maybe I just got spoiled by a really good team or it was a smaller team and I didn't need to use that, or it was an exempt team where they weren't hourly based, so their salaries, you have higher expectations. There are all these things that happen that make you rusty in certain areas. So you have to constantly remind yourself of that. And that's what books like I just mentioned are really good for audio, read them, watch and observe bad behavior. In fact, watch and observe is one of the greatest things you can do as a human being in all aspects of your life. Look at the people who are doing things good and watch what they do. Watch their mannerisms. Watch when they talk, when they don't talk. Watch how they listen. Watch how people listen to them. Observe. Be like a sponge. That's the best part of having a kid to me is it reminded me like everything to them is exciting and new. Everything to them is what can I learn from this? And they're doing like my son and my daughter, they mimic what me and my wife do perfectly. Right. In some cases, embarrassingly, like, please don't mimic that. But they're, they're sponges for it. They're observing. And we lose that as adults because we get this idea that we've learned it. We're good enough. We've done it. We don't need any more lessons. And I think one of the biggest things I try to remind myself is you're never a master of it. You're still learning every single day. Keep practicing. Keep getting better. There's no end point to it. There doesn't need to be.